I'm Amy, your host of Mother Lessons. I'm a postpartum doula supporting women through the transition into motherhood and after through emotional and physical support. Mothers need other mothers and through this podcast we can connect and support each other. Mother Lessons was inspired by the word matrescence. The word was coined in the 70s by anthropologist Dana Raphael. It is the transition period of becoming a mother, similar to a child becoming a teenager through adolescence. Our hormones go wild, our hair and skin change. We learn a whole new dynamic to our bodies and our relationships around us. This podcast is for mothers and mothers-to-be. It's here to support mothers in this massive transition and identity shift, which can happen over many years. We will explore all things mothering ourselves and our children, because mothering ourselves is the first step. In today's episode of Mother Lessons uh, podcast, I'll be speaking to Kim, Kim Botney, aka The Vagina Coach. She is on a mission to break through taboos and redefine how we think about women's health, like bladder like leakage is not just a part of being a woman. She wants women to know how to connect to their pelvic floor so they can overcome challenges like incontinence and organ prolapse and regain a sense of control and power in their lives. Imagine a world where we didn't only have to rely on the mainstream health system for our gynecological health, and we could find empowerment and healing and prevention with vagina specialists like Kim. So welcome, Kim, to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and um, how you came to being a vaginal coach and working in this field um, and a bit about your work. Yeah, for sure. I, uh, I, I certainly didn't grow up thinking that I was going to become a vagina coach. It was it kind of accidentally on purpose was the, was the way it happened. But I, I'm a personal trainer and um, basically I grew up with a fear and a bit of a fascination as well of childbirth. And I was always questioning my mom and I remember seeing a class, uh, a sex ed video about childbirth in grade six, I think it was, and thinking there's no way I'm going to do that, but still kind of thinking, well, my mom did it, my grandma did it, my aunt did it. And uh, that was, so I had kind of this negative perception of it mm. and that it was going to ruin your body and that's not something I wanted to do. So uh, as I got older, decided I did want to start a family. I watched my sister-in-law give birth and she used a midwife, I was in a sideline birth position. So things that I had never, ever experienced before or seen. And that changed my perception. And it, it, I would say it empowered me really to decide that I really did want to do that. Mm-hmm. And so that that's how it started. And then because I was still, I still had this kind of, you know, little bit of fear about tearing and incontinence and knowing what my mom had struggled with. I was talking to my mid- midwives about what I could do. They mentioned perineal massage. They also mentioned a product called the Epino, which is a biofeedback device for um, pelvic floor training. And Mm -hmm. I used that device and had a great experience and none of my friends had heard of it. I didn't know anybody who'd heard about it. And I decided that I think I I thought other people should know. Mm -hmm. And I contacted the company to see if I could become a distributor. And that's kind of how it started. So I actually didn't intend for it to become a business. I thought I would just sell these on the side and tell more people about it. And my midwives could pass it on. And anyway, fast forward, it's now 16 years later and it did turn into a business and I basically took my background in fitness. So as a personal trainer, I took doula training for a while. I was known as the fitness doula because I worked exclusively Mm. with pregnant, um, pregnant people. And then as I evolved kind of beyond that early pregnancy stage, I started to work with people who already did have, you know, can you help me now? Because I gave birth five years ago or 10 years ago. And that sort of evolved into covering the major life stages of pregnancy, motherhood, and menopause. And um, the vagina coach term came about because I was speaking to a group of women entrepreneurs about three or four years ago. And all of the it, was the, it was a national conference and all of the people speaking up to that point had been some sort of a business coach. And and then I came up on stage and obviously I'm not a business coach and, and I was telling them about pelvic health and my talk was how optimizing your pelvic health can make you a better mompreneur. Mm. And so I came on stage and just, you know, I always like to start out with something funny, but I just kind of, it, it just came out where I said, okay, well, now you have a vagina coach for your business. And, great. and so that's where the term came from. And I, it was like a life bulb moment that, that 
kind of captured what it is that I do. And, and it, it's a word that is, makes people feel very uncomfortable. Nobody likes to say it. And that's part of the reason why I, I specifically decided to keep that as well, because it's about normalizing it and making it just, it's just part of the body and it brings people's attention to where I want them to be focusing. Uh, so that's kind of how it started. So I'm a personal trainer. I, I have worked with a lot of urogynecologists, pelvic floor physios, um, a whole host of different practitioners and always focused on the pelvis, the pelvic floor, how we can incorporate it into movement and how we can move beyond just go home and do your kegels or you need surgery or you need this drug. Um, or yeah. pad. Amazing. I just want to circle back and um, ask you, what is the epino, epino thing that you were talking so, about? Did you say? Yeah, the epino is a, uh, Epino stands for no episiotomy. It's a, a product that's designed by a company in Germany. And it's been around since 1992. Um, used a lot in Europe, used a lot in Australia. It was here and I had it, I was the Canadian distributor for 14 years. Um, but a new Health Canada regulation came into place that made it more costly and more mm. more hoops to jump through. So a lot of smaller manufacturers chose to leave Canada. Unfortunately, they were one of them. But basically, it's a balloon uh, that's inserted into the vagina and it's attached to a gauge and you inflate it, it with a little bit of air. So it gives you some feedback. It gives you something to feel like, okay, I feel like there's something I could squeeze. Yeah. And when you do contract your pelvic floor muscles, it registers on the gauge. So the needle moves up and moves down as you contract and relax. And the additional piece from a childbirth prep perspective is for perineal massage in the last few weeks, after you've done your contract release training, you leave the balloon inserted and then you gradually inflate it. So you inflate it to the point of discomfort. Yeah. And then for 10 minutes, you allow it to provide that sensation that then you need to try to yield and surrender to. Mm. And when the sensation sort of dampens, then you can add a little bit more air. And the idea is you do it in the last few weeks of pregnancy and you can usually inflate it a little bit more each day. And it's not so much about getting it to a certain size, but it's just about teaching you how to respond, how to get your pelvic floor to respond to those sensations that are uncomfortable, stretch, pressure, you know, they're, that's what you will be experiencing when you're giving birth. And when you can learn how to manage that ahead of time, it really is, it, I think it's a very powerful tool. Yeah, that sounds incredible. And would you use that with perineal massage? Uh, you don't need to do both. So you, if, right, if okay. you have an epino, you can just do that. Uh, and what I found me personally, when I was using it was I found perineal massage itself was quite difficult, like to, yeah. to navigate your, yourself. If you have a willing partner to help you, then that's great. Um, but I really liked to be in control. I liked mm -hmm. to be able to see something that was happening. So the gauge was really, um, really helpful for me. Yeah. And yeah, so I think it's, I think it's one of the, and that's why, I mean, I sold it in Canada for 14 years and I still would be if health Canada didn't get in the way, but yeah, that sounds um, incredible. Thank you for yeah. sharing that. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit uh, about the importance of pelvic floor health and how we can bring pelvic health into our daily lives as like a lifestyle more than just a repair thing, you know, because everyone yeah. needs pelvic floor health. Yes, exactly. And, and I love that you brought that up because it is really a, a lifestyle. It, it's part, it should be part of our, just like we're brushing your teeth or whatever have you, it's, it should be something that we just do. Um, but unfortunately, it's viewed as something that you only need if you have a problem to fix. Mm. And unfortunately, most people are more motivated to fix something that exists rather than to prevent it in the first place. But uh, the importance of pelvic health is, uh, is great. The, the pelvis is our power center, and it's responsible for so many important parts of our life that we don't necessarily know or think about. Uh, it, the attachment points of the muscles, the pelvic floor muscles are on the two sit bones. So if you kind of pull your butt cheeks apart and feel those bony points, mm -hmm. the pubic joint in the front and the tailbone in the back. So because of those attachment points at the base of our spine and our pelvis, it contributes to our pelvic control, our stability. Mm -hmm. um, it contributes, the pelvic floor contributes to our continence. So that it has an element with sphincter control and helping close off the openings when we don't want something to come out and be able to relax when we do. 
So pee, poo, fart, we need to be able to distinguish between what wants to come out and then control or let it go. Organ support, our pelvic floor plays a role in helping keep our bladder, uterus, rectum up in place. Uh, plays a huge role in our sexual response. And so when things are not working, maybe something's off kilter, then it influences all of those things. And usually when the pelvic floor is working, we don't really think about it. And that's great. We, we, in some ways it's great because we have freedom of not having any symptoms, but it also, we don't have reminders that we should be paying attention to it per se. But when things are not working as they should, because it's so central to so many things that we do, it can sometimes start to become this, it, it overcomes, it overpowers all of our other uh, thoughts and it's all encompassing. And so that can be a good thing from a motivation to do the exercises. But again, it's once you have the problem, it's not to say you can't deal with it, you can't manage it, you can't improve. But if we could start to uh, be aware of this earlier in our life and, and develop a lifestyle around it, then I think that it would be a lot better. So I, I view it kind of like I was just at the dentist this morning with my son and I view, I view pelvic floor physiotherapy, which I'll talk about in a minute, like a dentist. So we have been conditioned to go to the dentist once or twice a year. They do a check, they, you know, screen for cavities, you know, check our bite, all that kind of stuff. And, and we just go, we just have accepted that that's just what we do. And then we brush our teeth twice a day and we floss, and we do all these things. And we really should be doing the same thing with our pelvic floor. So we should be checking in with our pelvic floor physio once or twice a year. They assess, they check for imbalances. They, they you know, can we contract and relax? Is there signs of maybe organ um, displacement? And then we should be doing our part daily to maintain. So that's kind of how I view it. And, um, and, and yeah, absolutely really should be a lifestyle. And what are the ways of maintaining if you're, if you're all good and you want to prevent and maintain what, what sort of key things would you need to do? A lot of it is the same as what you would be doing if you were restoring as well. So posture is a really big thing. Uh, we spend a lot more time sitting as a, as a population than we used to. Mm -hmm. And if you, we do, we have to sit and it sitting is okay, but we do spend more time sitting than we used to. So there's not as much varied movement in our life. And when we are sitting, we typically sit more slouched. And especially if we're spending time at a computer, we're more hunched over. Mm -hmm. That influences the alignment between the breathing diaphragm and the pelvic floor. And so not to say we can't ever slouch, but when we hold ourselves in slouched or tucked positions, our, our muscles adapt to those postures, I guess is what I'll say. So posture is a big one. Um, Kegels are always the, the, you know, they're so heavily de debated and a Kegel is basically a voluntary contract and lift and relaxation of the pelvic floor. I do believe that Kegels play a role, but not as most people think about them. So a lot of people say, well, I'll do them when I'm brushing my teeth. And actually that's not so bad, but, or I'll do them while I'm sitting in my car at every red light. Um, I believe that we need to take it a step further and bring it into movement because sitting at every red light or doing it just while you brush your teeth doesn't train the pelvic floor to respond to the things we do in life, like lift up laundry baskets or push a heavy door open or lift weights or whatever it is that we do. So, um, Actively learning how to contract and relax your pelvic floor is important, whether it's restorative or preventive. Mm -hmm. uh, seeing a pelvic floor physiotherapist once a year, as I talked about um, earlier, and eating. So diet can also play a big role. Diet can contribute to inflammation and inflammation can sometimes contribute to symptoms but also diet can contribute to how we eliminate. And if we are dealing with constipation or if we have bladder irritants, that could maybe set us up for going more often than we should, or maybe having difficulty with poop. And then we have more pressure on our pelvic floor. So optimizing our movement, optimizing our posture and optimizing what we put into our body are really great things, both restorative and preventive. Yeah. And that truly is a lifestyle lifestyle thing. Yeah. It's not just kegels, which is exactly what the mainstream sort of sees and thinks that they should do. So that's so, so good to, um, yeah, really important to um, highlight that. So what kind of foods, um, what kind of foods for incontinence would you suggest stopping or adding in? 
So the, what I typically recommend people do is do a, a bladder diary. And I'm actually in the process of getting one up on my website for people to just download. But um, you can just go and Google bladder diary and you'll find lots of them. But the, essentially, I, I usually recommend a three to maybe five days, but three days at, at least. And it's, you know, from the first in the morning until you go to bed, it's timed increments. Sorry, well, you, are, you aren't timed, but it has the times written down. And what you do is you... Every time you consume something, whether it's a, a liquid or, or solid food, write down what it is, how much you ate, um, like the volume, say, of the liquid that you had, and then start to pay attention to your symptoms. So then when you go to the bathroom, notice what time you went to the bathroom. Um, did you have like a strong sense of urgency to go? Um, just kind of paying attention to, oh, well, I've noticed over these three days, every time I have a cup of tea in the morning, then I have to go more often and I, I have a stronger urge. That's just an example. So caffeine can be a bladder irritant, alcohol, chocolate, acidic foods, mm. um, artificial sweeteners. Those I would say would be the most common yeah. that it, once people pay attention to when they consume them and what's, what the result is afterwards, they start to say, oh, well, maybe if I take that out, or maybe if I have one less coffee, or maybe if I, you know, and they can kind of play around with, uh, I, I'm not saying you have to 100% give it up, but some people do choose because at the end, when they notice that they feel better, or they don't have those urges anymore, they, they recognize that maybe it's not serving them. So those are kind of the main irritants, I would say. Uh, and then in terms of constipation, that can be a bit more individualized. So ideally, as women aiming for a very, very least 25, but I'm sort of more around the 30 grams of fiber with a blend between soluble and insoluble per day uh, and making sure that you have an adequate water intake as well. So those two, and especially when people do a bladder diary, they also go, oh, you know, I really don't really drink a lot of water. Mm -hmm. And that's really important as well. And people, when they are dealing with incontinence, often will restrict their fluids because they think, well, if I don't drink anything, mm -hmm. then... I won't need to go or I won't leak, but the bladder is constantly filling. And when there is not enough water, when our urine is, is more concentrated, it's irritating to the bladder. So it wants to get it out. So it'll actually signal you more often. Um, and so we, we kind of start to fall into these lifestyle habits unknowingly just because of strategies that we're thinking will help us where they actually start to contribute to some other issues. Uh, yeah. as well so yeah yeah for sure I noticed that completely when I don't drink enough water I go to the toilet more for sure yeah. and you know both those um, issues constipation and um, incontinence or mild incontinence is so um, present for many women who have just given birth so that's really important for people to hear yeah. um, could you talk to us about prolapse and um, what it is and how it can be diagnosed and how can we prevent it and how can we heal, heal it after? Yeah, prolapse is something that, you know, thinking back to when I was pregnant, I, had, I knew about incontinence because that's what my mom struggled with. I had never heard of the term prolapse. Nobody had ever said, I'd never heard of it. And it wasn't until, so after my second was born and I was now, you know, talking to doctors about the epino, you know, and I was with a group of doctors and somebody had said, oh, can you use that with a cystocele? And I'm sitting there trying to look smart and, you know, think I know what I'm talking about. And I just had to say, you know, what's a cystocele? Mm -hmm. and, and they said, oh, it's an organ prolapse. And I still, I was like, what's an organ prolapse? So I, I had a lot of learning to do early on. And when I went and started looking into it, I, it's, it's devastating. It can be very, if anybody Googles prolapse, it can be very visually disturbing to see. And it is the, the challenge, the pelvic floor challenge that I feel is the most difficult for people to overcome mentally. Um, but it's, it, statistically, I would say it's more common than incontinence, yet it's, okay. it's even less talked about. So statistically, Right after birth, like uh, this one study looked at six weeks postpartum and of the, and it was a, a, a significantly large study, 83% uh, of the participants had some degree of prolapse at six weeks postpartum and over 50% of that 83% had a stage two or greater. So to talk about what prolapse is, is essentially when the bladder, the uterus and or the rectum 
start to move out of their optimal position and they can start to bulge into or descend into the vagina. So in the case of a bladder, it can be called a bladder prolapse, a cystocele, or an anterior wall prolapse. So if you can imagine the, the front wall of the vagina would be the anterior wall. And if the bladder starts to kind of bulge, it creates like a little pocket, a little, a little bulge into the vagina. Early stage prolapse, it's usually grade one, two, three, four, one being the earliest, four being where it's actually right out of the introitus, hanging out of the, um, the vagina. Uh, so when it's caught early, it is, I, I've seen many people overcome, completely eliminate, <clears throat> pardon me, an early stage prolapse. When it is a stage three, so when the bulge is right at the entrance to the vagina or a stage four where it's outside of the vagina, that is, you won't reverse it with the other techniques that people can use. You could potentially improve a grade three, but once you're, at, especially if you're at a grade four, there's, there's not saying there's not things you can do to manage it, but you won't reverse that. You won't mm -hmm. necessarily make super significant improvements. Um, the uterus uh, is, a, is at the top of the vagina, and if that can start to descend into, so that would be a, a uterine prolapse. Then we have the back wall of the vagina. And if the rectum bulges into the back wall, that's called a rectocele or a posterior uh, wall prolapse. It's not called a rectal prolapse. A rectal prolapse is when the rectum actually comes out of the anus. Mm. Um, so that, that's, even though a bladder is called a bladder prolapse, that uh, it's not the same on the, on the rectum. So rectocele is something that I have. I have a stage two rectocele. And in terms of prevention, I think that there's, there's, we can't ever 100% prevent incontinence, tearing, prolapse, diastasis recti, any of these kind of the challenges that, that pregnant people might be facing or, or face afterwards. There's nothing to say that we can 100% prevent them. Yeah. There are things we could be doing to help minimize the severity or minimize the likelihood of something developing. But just with that one study that the, you know, it was a huge number of people. And then we look at 83% of them having a prolapse of six weeks postpartum. It is so, so common and we need better screening. We need better information ahead of time. We need better recovery strategies afterwards to help people. Because right now people give birth. They don't, no one's told them about prolapse. They don't know they have it. They, they they're, wait for their six week green light. And then they usually go from zero to 60. If they wait six weeks, some people are going back even, even sooner. And there's no regard paid to restoring or healing or recovering. Um, and birth really does leave the body in an injured state. And I know that's a very strong word to use, but we need to acknowledge that there has been a lot of interruption to function and tissue that needs time to heal and recover and restore. Yeah. So with that knowledge, I think that we could make a huge change in the development or the worsening of prolapse going forward, if that makes sense. Um, the biggest things I've seen, so posture does make a big thing. Obviously constipation is significant, especially if you have prolapse, you need to really, really maintain your, especially with a rectocele too, because it makes it more challenging to poop. Um, hypopressives is really powerful for, uh, for prolapse incontinence as well, but it's one of the, the only techniques that I, I before hypopressives came on the scene, there was pelvic floor exercise, but I, people really couldn't improve greatly a stage one or two, maybe a stage one, but a stage two and, and three, especially they couldn't necessarily make significant improvements. And it was always, you know, you can't lift, you can't run, you can't, you have all these things you can't do. And hypopressives came on the scene and it really offered hope to people that they could potentially overcome this this new challenge that they're faced with. So hyperpressives is a specific exercise technique that is uh, involves a bunch of different postures that are considered low pressure, meaning they don't have a lot of intra-abdominal pressure. And it's coupled with an apnea or a breath hold that elicits a response similar to Uddiyana Bandha in yoga mm -hmm. or the stomach vacuum in, in uh, body like bodybuilders use. It's a little bit different in terms of how you get into that, um, that, that, that response, but it's really, really powerful for prolapse. 
So from a recovery perspective, I think from a birth, what we do in pregnancy, pushing positions, and especially what we do in those early weeks postpartum, like the first six to eight weeks postpartum, and incorporating pelvic floor physio and, you know, all of the other things that I mentioned earlier need to be kind of our lifestyle, really. Yeah. So, I mean, for someone listening, that could sound super overwhelming because there's so much to it. Yeah. Um, would you say, I mean, you have a lot of amazing resources um, on your Instagram and on your website, and you've got loads of courses, which I'll ask at the end. Um, but would you say that that you would recommend um, a pregnant woman to work with a pelvic health specialist? before they get pregnant, during, after, all the way through? thousand percent to all of yeah. those. <laughs> yeah. So I think that um, once somebody becomes sexually active, um, I think that it, there's, I, I think there's no reason why we shouldn't be seeing a pelvic floor physio in, mm. in, a, it, in our daily life. There's a lot of younger people who are accepting pain, painful sex as normal, or have, mm -hmm. you know, maybe are leaking because they, you know, a lot of high intensity competitive athletes have incontinence. So there's lots of reasons why it should be part of our life. Uh, as people with vulvas and vaginas, we, we should have somebody who's helping us maintain that part of our body because we can't see. And sometimes little naggy symptoms that we have, we don't necessarily associate with pelvic floor dysfunction. So back pain is a huge mm -hmm. one. Nobody thinks about going to a pelvic floor physio. They think of chiropractor, massage therapy, acupuncture, those types of things. But um, so yes, I think that, you know, it, my ideal is somebody who has not given birth, who is not pregnant, who has been working with a pelvic floor physio, <clears throat> then they become pregnant, they continue to work with their physio, then they give birth, they continue to work with their physio. So absolutely. Yeah. Um, life. yeah. yeah I mean, totally. imagine, imagine this kind of education was given, like from the time that you start, you know, totally. in, you know, bleeding even, or just part of that yeah. whole education. It's actually crazy that that's not even spoken about, you know, and, and really, really properly educated on. Yes, um, I agree. Yeah. We just need to take it into our own hands and more vagina coaches need to be um, born. And I've seen that you actually train people to be vagina coaches, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, like, thankfully, when I first started this 16 years ago, there, there was Twitter had just come on the scene. Um, mm. Actually, no, that Twitter came on when I started using Twitter it was about 11 years ago. Um, and but but really there was there was we didn't have social media we didn't have the awareness we have now um we if somebody spoke to us about it we had that um resource but social media has definitely exploded and improved the awareness and the conversation there's there's we still need to navigate through a little bit of, of it ourselves but at least we have access to more information so we can then make more informed choices in our own health management but also if we do have children in our lives or sisters or you know anybody really men can benefit from pelvic floor physio as well but we can then instill new uh new habits and and new information to the younger generation as well so that over time i think that that will start to become more the norm but Absolutely. it will be it'll take some time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got to start somewhere, but that's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree. So can you advise, I mean, you've gone through so much, but can you advise pregnant listeners um, different ways that they can prepare for birth? So I saw, I think I saw a post on your Instagram of like, like birth is more than a marathon and you need to train for birth. Yeah. Can you just um, touch on some points that how can you train for birth? I know you, you've got a course on that as well. Or yep. is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can link um, all these um, at the end, but yeah, could you just touch on a few things that how can pregnant women train for birth? Because I totally agree with you. It's more than a marathon. It's a massive thing our body goes through and we do need to train our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. So people like a lot of people over, you know, when I say people, I mean, it's been like a funny saying that says, oh, birth is like a marathon. That's many people have heard that term used. And when you think about a marathon, unless you are an elite athlete, you're, you know, it's like four or five hours where you're going to be running this marathon. And you don't just decide one day, I'm going to run a marathon next weekend. It's, it's something that you plan for months in advance and you run increasing distances. You run at different paces. You do cross training. You have this training protocol 
And then just before, you know, like the week or so before race day, you taper off your activity, you're doing a lot of rest, you're nourishing your body, you're building up your energy stores, and then you compete. And then after that, there's a recovery protocol as well. I view birth as an event that we're training for. It is, you know, arguably significantly more challenging than a marathon or a triathlon or whatever it is, even an Ironman. I mean, some labors are days and, and some labors are, you know what I mean? So it, we have to look at it as this physically, emotionally, spiritually challenging event that requires some thought and some preparation. And when we train with the principle of specificity, so if I'm going to run a marathon, I'm going to run. If I'm going to do a triathlon, I'm going to run, bike and swim. In, in my training and birth, we look at what are the demands of labor? What, what are the common movement patterns? What are the most optimal birth positions? And how can I incorporate those movements or those practices into my fitness? Mm -hmm. So uh, walking, I, I like an, an very active birth. So walking is something I recommend everybody do. Uh, Sideline birth position. So this is the one I saw my sister-in-law use. It's actually the one that I used with my first birth as well. I'd never seen it before, but a sideline birth position, we can look at it as like a, a, a clamshell exercise or a sideline um, bent knee lift or fire hydrants. And that helps build lateral hip stability and gets us ready to have strength and endurance in that position rather than all of a sudden being in labor and trying to choose a position that is comfortable or successful. And somebody recommends sideline and you go into it and you, you don't have a lot of strength and endurance or you may not be as successful in that position mm -hmm. or your pelvic floor may not respond most appropriately because you're now like getting tired or do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So, and tight and, and all that. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So I, I, my, the course I have is called prepare to push and it's very much taking fitness uh, and applying it to labor and birth prep with, uh, focus on obviously the pelvic floor and the abdominal wall, and then a recovery strategy afterward, a recovery protocol, so to speak. And it's not to say do, you know, absolutely do this on day one, do, but just an awareness of nurturing and healing and fostering recovery rather than trying to be a super mom and trying to be, you know, I, I got it. I can do, I can manage all this and mm -hmm. not giving any attention to the, the needs of, of the body from a, a restoration perspective. So um, for pregnant people, paying attention to posture, doing birth specific exercise daily, ensuring they know how to contract and relax their pelvic floor with an emphasis on the relaxation. Um, you know, people say, oh, you're pregnant, do your Kegel exercises. And people, most people are doing them incorrectly or focusing just on the squeeze and not on the lift and not on the letting go. And especially with birth, we really need to focus on that, on that letting go piece. Mm, and I'm sure, you know, your course is um, full of education as well. And that's also, you know, if people are educated about what's happening to their bodies, they'll be more motivated to sort of prevent and, and repair and all that kind of thing. So yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a body awareness. It's understanding the biomechanical changes that are happening, what you can do to support those changes, um, how you can maintain muscle function around to, so that you don't have to just say, Oh, I'm pregnant. Oh, I'm going to get back pain. No, it's, it's not yeah. everybody should have back pain or pubic joint pain. It's not something we need to accept as just, it's just going to happen. Yeah, There's it's lots of incontinence. So it's, it's so normalized, isn't it? And it's so accepted. And we, we just live with these, as women, we live with these pains and challenges and think that they're normal and we make jokes about them. But actually, we, they're really, it's not a joke. And it's something that really affects the quality of our life. And I think it, yeah. they, they need to be seen as something that can be repaired. And yeah, it's so really. important work you're doing. And um, Isha Oaks um, says that how we look after our bodies in the first 40 days after birth will reflect the health of the next 40 years um, and menopause. What do you teach your community of women um, for that first 40 days after birth? So is there movement going on? Is there total rest? Like what, what do you teach your community? Uh, so I, I'm very much a believer of mother roasting, which is essentially this philosophy. The first 40 days sets you up for the next 40 years. Yeah. And um, there's a, an amazing book called The First 40 Days by Heng U that's amazing. Um, so my, my belief is that in the first week, there's not a whole ton of movement. There's, there's 
rest, you're in bed, you're anti-gravity, meaning you're not upright moving around. Um, skin to skin, babe is brought to you, food is brought to you, warm, collagen-rich foods, soups, mm -hmm. stews, that type of thing. You're getting up to go to the bathroom or to have a bath. And, um, and I do like heat for, for bathing, um, for sits baths, for wrapping. I, I am a big supporter of postpartum wrapping. Not belly, belly binding. Or... Yeah. And the term, the term belly binding, I think is a, is a bit mis, I don't know if it, it's not that it's misleading, but the term binding is like, is tight and restrictive. Mm. And I, I like the term wrapping better only because it is, it seems a bit more gentle and mm. people often believe that tighter is better. And if I cinch my abs in, it's really going to help. And that can actually um, worsen prolapse symptoms, create some pressure down. So we really want to wrap from the bottom up, focusing on supporting the pelvis more so than the, the abdomen. Um, and uh, the, the ab wrap, or the ab system from Belly's Inc. So that's a company that I started with two other women, one of which is a pelvic floor physio and recently sold. It's now run by a, an amazing doula here in my community. But that, you can learn a lot about belly wrapping there if you, if you want to. Um, and, uh, you know, massaging the abdomen gently with warm herbal pastes, mm. um, starting pelvic floor exercise, so the contract and relax, as soon as you feel comfortable. So depending on if there has been any tearing or not, the, the voluntary contract and lift portion of a, of a Kegel exercise may not feel great in those early days, mm. but even just breathing and thinking about the movement of the pelvic floor can help. And as soon as you do feel a little bit more comfortable, bring in that voluntary activation. It helps increase circulation. It helps stimulate nerve growth factor. It, it reminds the muscles like, oh yes, I gotta, I gotta get back to what it was that I was doing before. Um, so starting that as soon as possible postpartum. Uh, and then at six, between six and eight weeks postpartum, seeing a pelvic floor physio and pre-booking that appointment when you're still pregnant. Mm. Uh, and um, that's another huge, huge piece of it. And really, when you asked about movement, aside from that first week where I don't, I don't recommend a ton of movement really at all. After that, it's gentle movement. It's walking around the house. Um, it's bridge exercise. So starting to build up some activity in the glutes, it's going into the climb exercise and usually work week three or four working on the lateral hips again. Um, and then starting to get into some squat exercises too, because wow new moms and parents, what are they doing? They're picking up their baby and they're picking up a car seat and they're picking up strollers. And in the first weeks, I hope there's somebody who can do that lifting for the, the mom. Um, but there are people that don't have resources and help and they have to do that. So we need to be uh, preparing for those movements while we're still pregnant, incorporating the pelvic floor into them. And then once the babe is, is born, making sure we have a, a recovery retraining kind of protocol that we're following as well so that we can get back to those movements and do them successfully without contributing to um, other downward pressures or other things that might make it develop into something worse. Yeah. And I think it's a great point because in a way, you know, you do have this um, uh, culture that's coming up, which I think is great. And I'm part of that of, of really resting for the first six weeks. And I think if you can, and that's amazing for your body, but if you then suddenly go into um, getting into the car and putting the car seat, taking out the car seat with the baby and all those things and bouncing for endless hours with a baby, um, that is going to be so straining. So I love the way that you train the body all the way through. So all the way through, maybe even before pregnancy and then pregnancy. And then it's just, as you say, right from the beginning, it's a lifestyle. And we've yeah. just got to keep adapting those exercises to the stages of the life that we're in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Uh, are there ways to prevent abdominal diastasis um, and ways to pr uh, repair as well? Yeah, so um, no, <laughs> I would say it's pretty much, um, we have some research to show that 100% of women will have some sort of, uh, some degree or stage of, of diastasis by, I think it was the 35th week of pregnancy. Um, posture is a big thing. 
connective tissue integrity. So genetics is another thing, the size of the baby. Like there's so many factors that go into, again, there's nothing that we can say that, yes, if you do this, you're going to hundred percent prevent diastasis. Um, there's a lot of people that think by wearing a band in pregnancy that will help prevent. Uh, and I, I don't agree that it would. And so in terms of that knowledge, knowing that most people, if not all people will have some degree of separation of the, the rectus abdominis, what can we be doing in our pregnancy to support our body so that that, that separation is not as severe, not as big, that the impact to the connective tissue is not as, as, um, as prevalent. So things like, as, as I mentioned already posture, I'm, I'm a believer that, um, especially in more of the third trimester, if we have our, our belly out in front of us, uh, there are a lot of people who do forward, like all fours positions. So planks or bird dogs. I, rather than a statically held front loaded position like that, I, try to incorporate more active. So say moving into a deadlift. So you're going down into a front load, but you're coming right back up again. And you're managing the load through that time rather than having to manage. There's already stretch and strain on the, the muscles. There's already a separation. There's already stretch on that connective tissue and then putting them in a static held front loaded position where now you have the influence of gravity. I don't, I don't see the point per se. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I recommend that in the last um, depending some people in the second trimester, but especially in the third trimester that there's no statically held front loaded positions. Um, I have no research to support that. Uh, but that's just my, my two cents. Um, and then it's again, what we're doing in the weeks after baby is born. So while we're pregnant, it's really about managing posture, managing the pressure, the intra-abdominal pressure. And once we know, or sometimes people will say, well, every time I sit up, you know, if I've been lying in the, on the couch, every time I sit up, I notice that my belly goes up into a little bit of a cone. That's, that's essentially diastasis. So that's the two rectus that are, that are contracting, but there's a, a gap in between. And so the, the kind of the contents, the pressure moves out in between those two rectus. So when people have an understanding of what that is and they say, oh, okay, well, Maybe if I do a pelvic floor contraction first before I get up, that helps minimize that pressure. Or maybe it doesn't enough, so maybe I should roll to my side and get up. Um, so there's different movement patterns or strategies that people may, um, that may, they may adopt while they're pregnant. And then in the postpartum period, I believe wrapping does play a role in helping because of the support it gives to the pelvis that then allows the muscles around the pelvis to have a bit of, like they've been, undergoing this compensation change adaptation, whatever you want to call it for nine months. And then there's been a birth mm-hmm. and they're all kind of, they're trying to reorganize. And when you can give some temporary support to the pelvis, all those muscles can kind of go, okay, thank you for, I don't have to help out there. I'm going to go do my job mm-hmm. again. If yeah, that makes sense. Sure, for sure. Do you, um, with belly, um, wrapping, you call it, I use a, um, like, a a turby grip that basically just feels really comfortable, but super supportive. Would you say that that's um, something similar to what you use or is it something different? Yeah. The, what, what we made when we, when we made the wrap, we used um, an elastic. So we really, we liked tensor bandage. So sort of similar to what you're talking about. Um, the, the reason we liked elastic is because it, it stretches, it allows movement, but it, it comes back. So it, it shapes to you rather than some of the other ones that are quite, some of them are more boxy and they don't necessarily conform to the body and they don't shrink with the body. Um, we liked the, the hug that the elastic gave while still allowing for freedom of, of movement. There are a lot of people now also using K-tape. You've seen a lot of the people that have the colorful strips of tape yeah. um, using it in pregnancy and beyond. And in pregnancy, I think there, there's, I, I really like K-tape um, or kinesio tape, and there's lots of different applications. I think it can be very, very helpful. In the early weeks postpartum, when we have, we have an excess of like, there's the babe is out, the skin is not stretched anymore and getting good contact and not creating little kind of, this sounds weird, but little pockets in between those folds of skin that can then become irritated with tape. So I don't like tape in the early weeks 
but it could be a progression beyond wrapping. So when you're, when, if you're looking for a wrap, I like one that's elastic. I like one that can be put on from the bottom up. Um, I'm not, as much as I love the inspiration from the Bengkung wrapping yes. with the cloth, I, f I do feel like it's too restrictive of, of movement and we need to load the tissues with movement gradually to be able to get that full return to function. And I, I feel like that promotes a little bit more um, static, just lying there and, and hoping that the wrap's doing the work for me. Yeah. And I think it's really important that a mother is comfortable. She's just given birth, spent hours giving birth, yes. you know, and, and anything that's going to be sticking into anywhere is probably not doing a great deal <laughs> of, totally. of help. Yeah. No, that's really useful. Thank you. Um, so I want you to just tell me about your offerings and what you're offering right now. So both in terms of um, training vaginal coaches, but also for pregnant women and um, postpartum, what offerings do you have at the moment online? Yeah, I, I, have, um, I have online courses that are available anytime for both pregnant and non-pregnant people and also people who work with those people, professionals. So if you're pregnant, there's... Uh, a 28-day challenge I have called Birth Like a Boss, and it takes that principle of specificity and incorporates it into workouts. So you basically get a daily workout each day, gradually in increasing for the first three weeks and then a, a week of tapering afterwards. And you can do it at any point in pregnancy. I usually recommend second and third trimester. Um, beyond 35 weeks, you're getting, you may not actually get through the full thing. So I kind of feel like it's ideally before 35 weeks, 36 weeks, maybe. And, uh, and then from there, there's also, if you want more comprehensive, you know, beyond just a, a workout each day, the whole birth prep, birth positioning, pelvic floor activation, diastasis, healing protocol, all that kind of stuff is in prepare to push. And if you're not pregnant or you, you've maybe never been pregnant before, you can do the other option, which is the Buff Muff Challenge. So again, that's the pelvic floor fitness. So you get a daily pelvic floor workout to do. Uh, and if you want more comprehensive, you know, give me all the goods. I want to know about everything to do with incontinence, prolapse, back pain, diastasis. I want to hear from all the guest experts, all that. It's a program called Kegel Mojo. And that's, so those are kind of the, I, I say consumer. So the non-professional people, yeah. if you are a professional who works with pregnant people or, or non uh, and has an interest in helping people with incontinence and prolapse and back pain, um, then there's a core confidence certification or the pre-postnatal certification. Mm -hmm. And that the pre-postnatal is the most comprehensive and includes everything from the core confidence specialist plus everything you need to know about it goes, it goes deeper into pregnancy and uh, birth. And it, there's a, a, pre a pregnancy fitness textbook that goes along with that, that we wrote through human kinetics. And um, yeah, so that's, those are kind of, those are kind of the things I do. And every once in a while we do live courses and those obviously have been put on hold for a little while, but we're, we've done one live virtual. We're doing another live virtual course in October um, as part of the CanFit Pro conference. So there are still opportunities to learn beyond just strictly online. Mm. So you have but, loads, yeah. loads and loads to offer. That's amazing. Yeah. I'll link all of those um, on the show notes. Thank so you. I've just got three last um, questions that I ask all guests. Um, how did you personally experience the identity change from maiden to mother? Because you're a mother yourself. And this is all to, yeah, this is, this is all about. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it, um, I look, I look back and I, I actually, I, it was transformative, but I don't remember feeling a huge transformation. It was sort of, I had made a conscious decision that I was not going to lose myself as when I became a mom. And so I, I, I kind of just carried on. It was just, I carried on and now there's another person here carrying on with me and with my husband. And so I didn't experience a huge, big I think transformation per se, but I remember, I will never forget how loved and admired I felt in, I think it was around two weeks postpartum and my husband just could not, he was, he was in awe and he just kept saying it over and over again. And he was so proud in this and that, that really made me feel proud of my own body, proud of myself and, and kind of, and very feminine, which I've, I'm tomboyish E I'm not uber feminine per se, 
but I felt very feminine. I felt very womanly during that time. Um, so that's, that's what I would say for that. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Um, what three books would you recommend a mother read? Um, so if this is a person who's a mom to be, um, I, anything to do with Ina May Gaskin, uh, mm. I think she's amazing and, uh, really, really empowers people from a birth perspective. Um, the first 40 days is another, mm. I've, I've mentioned that one already, but that was another, uh, I think that every single person, uh, should be reading that one as well. And then the fourth trimester, and that mm. really talks a lot about the, and that's by Kimberly Ann Johnson. So, um, she took, I've known her for, for many, many years. And we actually connected because of the Epino, oddly enough, when she was living in Brazil and she came and she took uh, the core confidence course with me. And um, she's a supporter of belly wrapping and, and the, the app wrap, but the, her writing is exquisite. And the, the other elements she brought into the transition to motherhood and, and kind of moving beyond and accepting that there is this other phase that we need to honor, I guess is the best word. Uh, it's a really, really beautiful, beautiful book. And I think it's, um, it, it really empowers people with, with information for sure. I love yeah, that one. Given that as gifts to so many people, I think she's amazing yeah. and, and her offerings are incredible too. And the first 40 days, I think 85 or 90% of guests say the first 40 days, cause it's just, it's such a foundational book. It's brilliant. Yeah. And it's beautiful. I, I, I love even just the cover, like it's, 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 and it, it brings in the piece of nourishment. And I think that that's a, another overlooked piece. So now people are becoming more aware of this, okay, pelvic floor, pelvic floor, but they forget about the, what we're putting into our body and how that's helping our healing as well. So I, I love it. 100%. Thank you so much for yeah, talking to me and bringing this amazing work into the light and spreading it. It's just incredible work. So thank you so, so much, Kim. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thank you. Ah, oh, what an episode. Okay, so this, this, I've just listened to it after a, probably about four to six months after recording it. And um, I have procrastinated this episode for a long time. And do you know what? I believe that um, everything happens in the right time. And um, I'm so happy that I've re-listened to this now after doing an amazing training um, for six months with um, Raquel Rochelle from um, Innate Training. And I just have a much more understanding of the pelvic floor and the general holistic health of um, postpartum mothers. And so I really enjoyed re-listening to this and making the notes and now putting it out there. And there's so much information here. Just uh, re-listen, see the, see the show notes for all the little tips that she gave. And I just think that everyone should go out and find an amazing pelvic floor health specialist uh, physio to work with for the rest of their lives. Because um, our pelvic floor just holds our whole body together. So... Um, and I hope you enjoyed this and please check out all the other episodes and um, share them if they resonate. Lots of love.